Hey, everybody. Happy Sunday. Sorry for the slight delay. I had a personal thing to take care of. Now, let me move my cords here. Okay. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I hope everybody had a great weekend. And uh, it's winding down. And it's winding down for me, too. <laughs> I woke up. There we go. We get balanced here. I woke up thinking it was Monday. I slept so hard. Last. I thought maybe I slept through Sunday. I don't know. But I woke up thinking it was Monday, so I woke up in a panic because there's things I wanted to get accomplished today. So it's okay. I finally realized it was Sunday. I'm good. And my hat's on crooked as usual. There we go. I must, you know, my, my, my head's crooked. There we go. Anyway, welcome. It's Sunday reading day for California Haunts Radio. And uh, let me do this real fast. Let me get that going. And Sorry, I ran late. Um, it's Sunday reading day where I read from a paranormal theme book every Sunday. And for the last 15, 14 Sundays, we've been reading from this book about the Salem Witch Trials. And uh, we're more than halfway through. We have 187 pages left. So um, we're getting there. We're getting there. It's been an interesting book. It's written in old uh, 1600s. You know, some of it, um, the author, Rebecca F. Pittman, who I have a lot of respect for, was looking at uh, different county records and things like that and because she was doing that it's you know that some of the she's taken exact quotes out of those records and it's like 1600 you know old english 1600 so sometimes reading gets interesting and uh <laughs> it's been an adventure but it's a great book i mean it's just it gives you a great idea of of what happened during the witch trials and, and how bad it was and one-sided and all that i mean my god just reading this book something okay my name is charlotte i should introduce myself should i and i am the owner of california haunts radio and the california haunts paranormal investigation team based out of sacramento california we are 45 strong which means uh we're in almost in every county so that if you have a parent you think you have a paranormal issue we can get to you it might take us a while but we'll get to you and if we can't excuse me that piece of cake and if we can't get to you right away we have one of our we have five psych, five mediums on staff who can call you and uh help you out until we can get out to you so uh yeah okay that's done and you can find us here right here on facebook under california haunts or under my name or over at instagram under ghosty gal and it's all lowercase or over at youtube uh, under California Haunts Radio, that would be youtube.com forward slash ampersand California Haunts Radio. Or you can find us at TikTok under California Haunts, and that is all lowercase. Or you can find us at Twitter at Cal Haunts. Or you can find us on Twitch, and I think that one's Cal Haunts too. Okay, well, welcome, and uh, we're going to get reading here. Uh, like I said, we're down to a, it's a, we, this is our 15th Sunday. Or our 15th reading of this. It doesn't necessarily mean Sunday because sometimes if a guest doesn't come through or something happens, that's why I fall back on is reading the book. So we have opened this book 14 times. This is the 15th time I'm going to open this book to read it. So uh, we're getting there. We're inching closer, closer to the end. And then we're going to be switcher. I'm, dang it. gonna be one of those days anyway so we'll be getting into whoa there we go again so we'll be getting into unholy structure and uh, i even paid for more internet I, you know i upgraded my internet 
and this, this is what I'm getting. I upgraded my my you know my everything for my internet, all the equipment, everything, and this is this is what's happening. It's irritating. Con Comcast Xfinity. You know, I'm gonna put the name out there because it really bugs me. I didn't I didn't have this problem with AT and T, but unfortunately, AT and T, you pay for the service. That's all I can say about that. You pay for what you get. Okay. Anyway, um, this book is written by Rebecca F. Pittman. I have uh, permission from her to be reading it. I also have permission from the publisher to be reading this book, so uh, there's no copyright issues with that. So we're going to clear that up right away. And like I said, this is the 15th time I'm open, literally opening the ebook. And the quick warnings are: a, some of it's in 1600 style English. Some of it because it's an ebook, which isn't that bad, right? An Amazon thing. But that doesn't make it bad. What makes it bad is because I'm blind, so I have to, like, enlarge it. <laughs> so sometimes some of the paragraphs will run into each other. You know, sometimes the captions run into paragraphs. So you'll hear me go, and then all of a sudden I'll stop because I'm lost. I have to flip back or figure out where the heck I'm at because everything, like, runs in, in other things, in, in, into the other text. Um, oh, yeah, another update here, too. I'm going to be doing, if anybody's interested and wants to get into podcasting, it's fun. It's a fun thing to do. But you also have to have a nice, secure place to do it. Sometimes people have offices to do it in. It's just, a, you know, small rooms to do it in. I managed to do it in a closet. In fact, you think I'd have this big space here? Yeah. This is a closet. This is a not even a walk-in closet. This is, a, this is almost a standard closet. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you guys how I built this studio. I have two studios. I have a big video studio in the other room, video and photo studio in the other room, and then I have this one for the show. Okay, so I'm going to show you guys what I did. And I did it for, I would say, under $400. I was able to put this together. Except, you know, minus the computer and the stuff I need to run, literally run the show. But the other stuff, as far as building it, I did it for under $400. So I want to show you guys, I'll be doing some, I'll be doing a, one or two how-to videos on how I did this. So if you're interested in going into podcasting and you want to do it without breaking the bank, I'll show you how to do that. Okay, enough said about that. If anybody has any questions during the show, be free, uh, feel free to ask, anything like that. But you know what? This is Sunday, so you don't have to sit there and look at me read a book. You can carry me around. I have one <laughs> I have one uh, listener who is doing laundry today in her basement, so she's going to be carrying me around her house picking up laundry. I like to travel. I'm good. Let's give me a chance. I haven't traveled, a, I haven't traveled in a month, so let's give me a chance to get some traveling in, right, if she carries me around. All right, so let's do this, and... Uh, yeah, this is a well, and I'm going to just give Rebecca Pittman credit again, Rebecca F. Pittman credit again, because this book is well-written, very thoroughly um, researched, and uh, yeah, I can't say enough about it. I mean, as a journalist and the research that we have to do with our stories and stuff, this is great. This is fantastic. I mean, she does, she, she, she researches like, like a journalist doing a depth news story, I'll tell you that. So here we go. <laughs> It's just an FYI, if you want a little fun today, too. I kind of went over the dark side this morning. So check it out on my YouTube shorts or on the shorts over, you know, on the shorts on Facebook or whatever. I, yeah, I, I kind of took a trip to the dark side this morning. So uh, if you're watching from Facebook, be sure and, and you like what you hear today with the read, please be sure to hit that like button or the heart. Show me some love, even on YouTube. If you're watching from YouTube, please do that. If you're watching for the first time on YouTube, please be sure you like what you hear, okay? Please be sure to hit that like and follow button. Same thing with Facebook. If you're watching from Facebook and you like having a book read to you every Sunday or whatever, 
hit that like and follow follow button because I mean I'm I'm doing videos every day except Saturday, and then the stuff in between that I do right. So yeah, follow follow follow. Looking for followers, looking for subscribers. Let me dial in here. I have an antiquated tablet. It's overworked and underpaid. It keeps telling me it's running out of memory. I can't even update my tablet. That's how old my tablet is. But it's done the job. And it went dark. Storage space running out. Well, yeah, we knew that. We knew that was happening. So hang on for me to get this back in. Okay. So here we go. All right, so the book is The History and Haunting of Salem, The Witch Trials and Beyond by Rebecca F. Pittman. And the courts are over. They finally, they finally came to the conclusion, after all these, all these killings of these, of these innocent people that, 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 that were accused of witchcraft, they finally come to the conclusion, a whole bunch of people came to There were people from out of town, from Boston, I think that came to that conclusion, that it, it was bogus. And they killed these people for not essentially for nothing. So this is where we're at in the book. So the where we're starting is the court of Oyer and Terminer is dismissed. This is where we're starting. But this is after hanging what? 16 people for witchcraft who were innocent. Pretty sad thing. Pretty sad thing in history. And if you want to know the rest of the story, if you're just coming in for the first time today, if you want to know the rest of the story, go on back on it. Go, go, go to our YouTube page. Everything's there from day one for these stories. Everything. Or if you don't want to do that and you want to drive and hear my lovely voice, uh, we are on Apple, uh, iHeart. You can find us everywhere, a podcast. So anyway, here we go. And like I said, as of as of last Sunday when we were reading, they started to close these court courts down. Okay, so here we go. Again, the court of Oyer and Terminer is dismissed. The magistrates finally fell beneath the onslaught of disapproval and petitions for the release of prisoners. On October 26th, they did what they had always done. They laid the decision on the church's doormat. They called for a fast and convocation of the ministers that may be led in the right way as to witchcraft. It was over. The court was officially dismissed. The orange and red leaves that crunched beneath the villagers' feet were somehow symbolic of the death of not only those who had been executed or died in jail, but of a court that had been, in the end, a mock trial. Yet, the fallout was far from over. The prison environment claimed two more lives, including that of confessed witch Ann Foster of Andover. At least 150 witches had been arrested. What to do with them? As the dead bodies of prisoners were carried out and handed over to family members, the outcry increased. This up a little bit more. It was a legal mess, to say the least. Winter was a concern, and the prisons housing these poor creatures were rudimentary in structure and bursting with hungry and sick souls. Governor Phipps looked over the petitions from the neighboring towns of Massachusetts, asking for the release of their family members on bond and chewed upon it. He ran a tired finger down the prison roster and blanched at the ages of some of the prisoners. Dorothy and Abigail Faulkner were merely 10 and 8, respectively. Nathaniel Dane and John Osgood were willing to put up 500-pound bond for them. Stephen and Abigail Johnson were 13 and 11. And Sarah Carrier, only 8. 
after much time spent on reading the depositions against these children and many adults and finding the evidence to be mostly spectral, he released the prisoners whose families would post bond. For those whose families could not afford the bail money, the prisoners remained. Tatuba Indian was one such person. Poor little Dorcas Good still huddled in a corner, her baby sibling dead and her mother hanged. It must have been gut-wrenching for those who watched as others walked out into the light of freedom while they remained. Sir William admonished the judges residing over the districts with imprisoned witches to watch over their safety and welfare. Just how that was to be administered was left open. In the wake of the superstition, lies, and hysteria, a new law was drawn up on December 14th, giving some guidelines as to what certain acts of witchcraft would bring in the way to punishment. Incredulously, despite it all, witchcraft was still considered a very real thing. There just needed to be better laws to discern a the degree of the witchcraft used. For those witches who conjured or used charms to hurt or kill for any invocation, conjuration of any evil spirit, or for taking up any dead man, woman, or child from their graves, the penalty was death. Quote, it's disconcerting to think this grave robbing must have been an issue, or it would not have required mention. Unquote. Or the practice of white magic, which was going on anyway in secret in many houses. The sentence was prison time or the pillory if you were using charms, etc., in an effort to find stolen property, buried treasure, the killing of cattle, or to invoke any person to unlawful love. Despite the dissolution of the court and the gradual release of prisoners, some towns held tight to the witch mania. Gloucester was one such town. It sent for the superstars of Salem Village to come and take a look at some afflicted people. The girls compiled, or complied, I'm sorry, and four women were rounded up as witches and ended up in Ipswich Jail and Salem turned them away. In November, some from Gloucester summoned the girls again. As they were crossing the Ipswich Bridge on their way to that town, they met an old woman that must have seemed like a perfect fit for a crone's image. The girls fell down into fits and cried out against her. But to their astonishment, the people who gathered to see what the fuss was about looked at them in amusement, ignored them, and went about their business. Ipswich had no patience for such antics. The girls got up, dusted themselves off, and looked at each other as if to say, Now what? The girls continued their journey to Gloucester, but their performance lacked conviction. The, mag the magician's curtain had been pulled back, and they were exposed. No arrest resulted from their journey. Salem Village turned its thoughts to the brutal cold of winter. The only thing that saved hundreds of households from freezing that season was what the majority of witches in prison were women. Was that the majority of witches in prison were women, leaving the men to chop the wood and forage for food? Still, so many field hands had left crops unattended during their time spent as spectators in court and trying to fight off the devil that produce and meat were at a minimum. Sheriff Corwin had made off with cattle and foodstuffs that were not that easy to replace. Jars that typically held preserves sat empty. Firewood was hastily gathered where it could be found, for despite popular belief, Salem Village boasted many open fields, rocky ground, and marshes. Old Nick pushed around the chess pieces on his map of Essex County to no avail. His pawns had fallen, leaving him deposed. His bishop would seem to be vanquished from the village, and his knights had fought their last battle. Even the castles of court were laid low. 
He looked about the destruction he had caused, and while 20 executions were not the massive total he had hoped for, the desecration of towns and churches had been encouraging. There would be other times, in other places. Chapter 36 What Have We Done? Hello, Pamela. Chapter 36, What Have We Done? As the Massachusetts Bay Colony looked about at the devastation wrought in a short year's time, it assessed the loss to which le le legislative, co le legislative coffers as well. The copious amount of time the magistrates, constables, and jail keepers had spent on the witch trials had taken them away from other matters. The timing had been detrimental to the colony. They had only just received their new charter, and at a time when they had other important matters in legislature to conduct, they were instead traveling back and forth to Salem to watch children throwing tantrums on the floor and hearing outrageous stories of flying ghosts and picnics in Samuel Paris's pasture. Their 17th century inbox was overflowing with petitions and legal documents demanding their attention. At this juncture, to sit on the bench overseeing a dispute about a land boundary and the cost of timber looked like heaven. As prisoners were released to the families who could post bond, the Massachusetts legal system put forth this statement on December 16th, when, quote, Upon consideration of many persons now in custody within the county of Essex, charged as capital offenders, end quote, a new superior court in the form of, quote, a court of Aziz and general goal delivery, end quote, to be held January 3rd, 1693. When this proverbial tail between, with his proverbial tail between his legs, Governor Phipps wrote to the Secretary of State in London that some of the judges, quote, were convinced and acknowledged that their former proceedings were too violent and not grounded upon a right foundation, end quote. And so the 1693 trials would fly under a different judicial flag. Phipps may have put forth the disclaimer that he had been in England when the whole mess started, and that many people were already questioned and in jail by the time he returned with the charter. And so, in the new year of 1693, the snows fell upon Essex County. The mind-numbing routine that had witnessed the boredom and eventual hysteria of the winter prior settled in once more. A year had passed since Abigail, Abigail Williams and Betty Paris watched as Tatuba dropped an egg, white, white, an egg white into a glass of water in the shape of a coffin appeared in the swirling, in the swirling as it swirled. Al Boomin. Al Boomin? Is that the word? As farmers, housewives, and children once more took up their daily chores and scripture study, did they miss the excitement that had added color to their gray days during the elevated state of hysteria? As their hands tried, as their hands tied dried herbs, as their hands tied dried dried herbs, sewed a button, or wielded an axe, were they now freed from the miasma of psychoneurosis that had plagued the county? Two court sessions were held in January and February under the new court of Aziz, where 52 people were tried. Only three were convicted. Nine of the people appearing, including the wealthy Philip and Mary English, were not even indicted. The list of those acquitted contained the names of Mary Toothacre, Mary Lacey Jr., Richard Carrier, and Mary Marston. Three confessed witches were convicted on the grounds of covenanting with Satan and afflicting others, Sarah Wardwell, Betty Johnson, and Mary Post. Anthony Checkley, the Boston lawyer who had replaced Thomas Newton as trial attorney during the trials of Oyer and Terminer, informed Governor Phipps that technically the three condemned women were under the same circumstances as some of the cleared. 
Phipps thought it over and reversed his decision. He reprieved them as well. Lieutenant Governor Stoughton went through the roof. He had already signed their death warrants, along with five others who had recently been tried and found guilty. Phipps, in a rare move of courage, stood strong and reprieved them all, stating his decision would stand, quote, until their majesty's pleasure be signified and declared, end quote. True, he had passed the buck to the head of England, but it was a stand of defiance all the same. Stoughton stormed off the bench in early February, resigning his post, quote, filled with passionate anger, unquote. He let it be known by, his, by his, this action of reprieving convicted witches, quote, the kingdom of Satan was advanced and the Lord have mercy on the county, end quote. He had been denied his pound of flesh. Thomas Danforth replaced him, although Stoughton returned in April to preside over the final set of trials. By April 1693, only a few remained who would stand before the bar. Hearing the court of warrior Turner had been dismantled. Alden had returned to Salem from his hiding place in New York on December 22, 1692. He posted bond on December 31st. On April 25th, he stood before a bench of judges who lacked enthusiasm and were ready to move on to other matters besides witches and wizards. He was reprieved and left to go about his business. The majority of the other prisoners to stand before the court of Aziz, filthy and thin from months of imprisonment, or Andover confessors. Those who had been home for a time, thanks to the bond release, looked far better off, with washed faces and clean clothes, and a color in their cheeks that was wanting in the others who spent their hours in darkness. Every one of them was acquitted and let go. Tatuba Indians sat within the crumbling stone walls and watched as one by one the others left and did not return. She had eaten the prison fare and inhaled the stench of sweat, urine, and feces for over a year. Babies had been born here. Some lived, others did not. She had been here the longest. The other two arrested with her were long gone. Sarah Osborne died before her eyes within the walls of Boston Prison, and Sarah Good had left her filthy pipe behind as she was dragged up to Gallows Hill and hung. She had heard endless nights of weeping and prayers, hatred and swearing, hope and resignation. On May 9th, 1693, an Ipswich grand jury finally granted her reprieve. The official document stated, quote, to Tapa, an Indian woman servant to Mr. Samuel Paris of Salem Village, end quote, had, quote, wickedly and feloniously signed the devil's book, quote, and, quote, become a detestable witch, end quote. The court offered her one disclaimer as to her vulnerability to evil. They wrote ignoramus at the top of her reprieve. If Tatuba found the news of her pardon heartwarming, it was soon made known to her that her master, Reverend Samuel Paris, had declined to pay her jail fees, thus leaving her there to rot. Many others, who had been formally granted their freedom, remained until their bills could be paid. Some, without relatives, who would help them, or homes that could mortgage, waited in the dark nights. One such witch was Sarah Daston, who finally died waiting for some kind soul to ransom her out. Mary Watkins, finding herself in the same situation, hit upon the idea to ask the jailer if he might find her master, a master who would be willing to pay her jail fees in exchange for her servitude. A gentleman from Virginia was found, and she, ex she exchanged imprisonment for slavery. Tatuba, perhaps following her example, offered the same request, and a new master paid her fees in exchange for a lifetime of chores. With board at the jails, she had run up a tab at both Boston and Salem, averaging about two shillings 
a sixpence a week. Tatuba's bill of over a year was formidable. She was lucky to find someone who would free her. Margaret Jacobs, the granddaughter of old George Jacobs Sr., who had been hanged as a wizard, was still incarcerated. Her parents had fled the state during the witchcraft accusations and not returned. It was a moot point anyway. The Jacobs' goods had been seized during their exile, and there was no money with which to pay the jailer. Although Jacobs Sr. had left Margaret 10 pounds, I think it's pounds or shillings, I'm just going to go with pounds, in his will, the inheritance had fallen through the cracks. Despite her bravery in recanting her confession of witchcraft, she stayed in jail as the seasons turned outside. Finally, a generous soul, hearing of her plight, paid her jail fees, and Margaret went free, not as a servant, but as a young woman to find her way in the world. For the prisoners, handed the reprieves, it was on paper only. Despite reclaiming their places amongst their families, many did not reclaim their good names amongst the general population. They had been convicted of witchcraft, and an allegation such as that was hard to wear down. Elizabeth Proctor and Abigail Faulkner both condemned witches, who had been given extra time before their executions due to pregnancy concerns, walked out of jail with their babies. These women, and the others convicted, had no legal existence. They could not even claim their, dow their dowers. Proctor returned to a home desecrated of his possessions, only some of which her family had managed to buy back. Her husband had been hanged, and she had another hungry mouth to feed among a plethora of children. The aftermath. As the prisoners were released and wandered back to ruined lives, did the villagers mark that the afflicted girls showed no signs of further tormenting? If, indeed, these people they had cried out against were witches, would they not still remain so? In fact, would they not now be free to inflict the wrath on the girls and adults who had caused their own torments and ruination? Yet, oddly, none of the afflicted posted reports of harassment after the prisons emptied. Cotton Mather defiled for his involvement in trying to help some of the afflicted, such as Mary Short, had remained faithful and putting his notes and insights of the trials into a manuscript. In his highly popular Wonders of the Invisible World, which came out in 1693 during the jail releases, he documented the events of the examinations and trials of George Burroughs, Bridget Bishop, Susanna Martin, Elizabeth Howe, and Martha Carrier, all hanged for witchcraft. For people who had not sat a pew during the proceedings, the manuscript offered their only version of the trials. Governor Phipps had tried to prevent this publication along with Thomas Brattle's inflammatory letter, but finally gave up when it was clear the public knew most of the culpability already. It became a journalistic masterpiece, lauded, for, lauded far and wide for its accuracy in reporting. Sheriff George Corwin had continued his looting. Artist hit was Philip English. After he had been convicted to flee Salem, after, sorry, after he had been convinced to flee Salem, along with his wife Mary, what he feared most happened. Sheriff Corwin rode up with his men and his empty carts and fell upon English's possessions with relish. Corwin, having bagged a big bird, also went after English's wharves and warehouses until the total amount ceased totaled over 1,500 pounds. Philip English, who eventually lost his, lost his wife due to conditions she had suffered, while in prison, this is such tactics. It did little good. The new witchcraft law, which had been adopted in December while English was in hiding, 
left out the 1604 provision that preserved dower and inheritance for the heirs of the executed witches. Many believe this omission was Phipps' way of protecting the Essex County Sheriff, who had already confiscated part or all of the estates of several of those who had been executed. Had Mary English's death been the loophole Corwin crawled through in order to snatch up English's goods? Or was the looting of condemned witches allowed in the fine print? At any rate, Corwin was exonerated from any wrongdoing, and the pleas of Philip English in 1694 were ignored. Under the new bill, Corwin had done nothing wrong. English was to have the last word on the matter. Sheriff George Corwin died in 1697. English somehow confiscated, conf, excuse me, I know this stuff, confiscated the dead man's body and hid it. While he couldn't do this for long, he held on to it until the funeral arrangements had been delayed enough for the sheriff's family to finally pony up 60 pounds. Not nearly what English had lost, but a piece of justice nonetheless. Yet, it was the lineage of Judge John Hawthorne, a man English hated equally as much as Corwin, who would thwart Philip English's Hang on, see? Philip English's total revenge on the purveyors of the witchcraft trials. English left behind daughters, one of whom would marry one of Judge Hawthorne's sons. This union would produce a lineage that included famed novelist Nathaniel Hawthorne, who added a W to his name in an effort to disassociate himself from the infamous Judge Nathaniel, who was born in Salem Town in 1804, penned, among other novels, The House of the Seven Gables and The Scarlet Letter. These two literary ma masterpieces are filled with haunted images where the ghosts of the witch trials can be seen woven throughout Greek lines. God and the Devil. For New England Puritan Indian warfare and visitation of hundreds of witches was a devastating blow to the people who had escaped England to bring to this barren wilderness, God's word, and erect their shining city on the hill. These people, even third-generation Puritans, believed, without a doubt, in the invisible world around them, where angels and demons battle over their welfare. The wonders of nature held, si held signs of their righteousness and wrongdoing. You could be blessed by sun and rain for a bountiful harvest, or laid low by a hurricane or tornado. All acted as barometers of their standing with God. Thus, when in 1692 a plague of Indian and witch attacks infiltrated New, York, New England, they turned to themselves to see what they had done to incur God's wrath. While he had unleashed the devil among them, what, okay, I'm sorry, why had he unleashed the devil among them? It was this train of thought that the military commanders and magistrates hid behind during the ravaging of, ta of town and village by evil, appearing in the guise of spectral shapes and the old two real physical bodies of hatchet-wielding natives. The militias failed attempts to save butchered towns along Maine's coastline could be attributed to the devil, not ordinary men. They had not failed. Evil had prevailed. And what of the girls and the others who had made up the circle of afflicted? How convenient it was to let these young innocents run the show. Not only did they, through coercion from adults, rid the village of its unwanted souls, they had served, they have solved murders from long past through the appearance of specters in winding sheets crying out against their killers. These were murders in which the magistrates had failed to convict the perpetrator. The adults had but to whisper someone's name who held land they coveted or who had mistreated them or held a rank higher than their own and abracadabra they were taken care of. It was not until the accusations hit too close to the governor's door that it all came falling down. 
Is that party? Is that partly why the magistrates overlooked the glaring evidence that the girls were faking their fits? Were they, like others, only too happy to see many of these people condemned? So many machinations were going on behind the scenes that it's hard to say. In the end, it was a group of afflicted people who would stand before the judgment of posterity. We look at this unseemly group with, with incredulous. I'm sorry. We look at this unseemly group with, with, with incredulity. 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 Sorry. <laughs> Every day. We look at this unseemly group. You got the word. I don't worry about it. With incredulity. I don't know why I can't say these words. Most were of the Puritan infant structure that fell at the bottom of the hierarchy. Five were little girls, ages 13 and under, three from Salem Village, and two who joined later from Andover. The next group of accusers was comprised of young adults, 14 and older, living in Andover and Salem Village, including one male. This age bracket fell within the perimeters of being old enough to testify, credibly in court. Yet it was young Ann Putnam Jr. that brought about so many so many of the arrest warrants, albeit with the support of parents and some of the older girls. Finally, there were the adults who made up the inner circle, most notably Sarah Bibber and Ann Carr Putnam. Gosh. These went on record with their these went on record with their with their depositions, but it was clear that many males, such as Thomas Putnam, John Putnam, Samuel Paris, and Nathaniel Ingersoll, were only too happy to sign depositions attesting to the afflicted person's torment. It is the very makeup of this group that keeps historians and voyeurs from centuries, from centuries into the future, gaping at the audacity of the girls and the gullibility of a society. How did it happen? What have we done? Chapter 37, Confessions and Compensation Spring came to Salem Village in an explosion of color, fragrance, and promise. The inhabitants looked out upon a world that seemed suddenly changed, not just in appearance, but in feeling. There were pews at the meeting house, glaringly emptied of the souls who once sat there on the Sabbath, now buried and mourned. One could not walk or ride past the rocky ledge of Gallows Hill without glancing with a shudder at the thick boughs of the trees there, one in particular void of its bark, where weighted ropes had stripped it bare. The most active in the accusations and trials searched for for, for ablution, searched for ablution. Many never found it. There was an unseen poison that still lingered here. It can, as, as confessions began to emerge, admitting to falsified statements, the village of Salem was left reeling. What was real and what was fake? That the devil lived was a certainty, but now they were being told that people had been executed due to false witness. Had witches infiltrated Salem, or had they not? Was it only by degree or by mass? Neighbor had accused neighbor. Husband had broken charity with wife, and children had testified against relatives. How would they ever rebuild a network of trust within these ruins? Even the meeting house seemed less than sunlight. Here, chaos had reigned in a house that was built for charity and a coming together of the community. As the people of the village walked past the pasture land of the parsonage, did they look and wonder if a bloody Sabbath was held there? Was that the sudden bending of grass falling beneath unseen footsteps? 
Was that a witch's pole leaning against a tree or merely a broken branch dangling in the wind? How would they know what to believe? Reverend Samuel Paris's Last Days Reverend Samuel Paris would take the brunt of the backlash as more and more people came to the conclusion that something very violent happened under his watch. It was either to lay the blame on someone else's doormat than to admit. I'm sorry, it was easier to lay the blame on someone else's doorstep doormat than, than to admit you had been party to the gossip or had been one who had voted for Martha Corey or Rebecca Nurse's excommunication. The villagers did retain one area of consistency. They again refused to pay Paris his salary. He would have to find a way to make a living off the orchard and pasture where witches and the man in the high-crowned hat had dined. They went farther and asked that Paris be removed, stating Mr. Paris has been the beginner and the procurer of the sorest affliction, not to the village only, but to the whole country. Many refused to step foot inside the meeting house if he was at the pulpit. In an effort to spend the, stem the tide of hatred, the Reverend looked out over the, I mean, the meager gallery, or gathering, I'm sorry, the meager gathering in April of 1693 and offered a prayer of forgiveness for himself, along with the regret that the whole thing had begun beneath his roof. Yet, in typical fashion, he hurriedly made it clear he had no idea conjuring and was going on. Conjuring, he had no idea conjuring was going on, and that, quote, I desire to lie low under this reproach and to lay my hand on, to my mouth, end, end quote. Paris called his sermon Meditations for Peace. He admitted in it that the devil could take the shape of an innocent person and that it was wrong to allow the afflicted to name who was afflicting them and use it as evidence. He, and laying it soundly back on, on the devil, he offered his sympathy to the families who had suffered through the clouds of human weakness and Satan's wiles and sophistry. To the end, Paris found scapegoats everywhere but his own threshold. The congregation was not moved. Rebecca Nurse's family in particular were strong in their reproach of this, of this man of the cloth. Quote, If half so much had been said formally, stated John Tarbell, Rebecca Nurse's son-in-law, quote, it would have never come to this. End quote. One of Rebecca's sons, still trying to come to terms with his grief, said, quote, We know not how to express the lot the loss of such a mother in such a way, end quote. The nurse family, who had fought so valiantly to clear their matriarch, looked upon a man who took the word of hysterical children over that of a church-coveted woman and signed depositions that would hang her. Even Judge Hawthorne had hesitated as he looked upon this frail, pious woman and tried to save her initially. But not Paris, not the shepherd of the flock. The cry against him continued until finally in April, 1695, a council of churches of the North Shore meant to mitigate the issue. After hearing the accusations against Paris, the Assembly of Ministers agreed with the opponents that unwarranted and uncomfortable steps had to be taken by Paris during, during the dark time of confusion. I'm sorry, had been taken by Paris during the dark time of the confusion. Many complained that his sermons during the witch trials had been dark and dismal, and words of charity were never heard from his pulpit. Finally, Paris bent to the majority. There was no point in preaching to a hostile gathering or trying to subset on paltry offerings from his land. He struggled on until June 21, 1696, when he made a formal announcement to a Salem village congregation that he was resigning. Two weeks later, his wife Elizabeth 
who had been ill throughout throughout the witchcraft hysteria died. His caveat for leaving was that the town paid him in arrears of seventy nine to seventy nine pounds to nine shillings and six d. I don't know what that is. They happily complied and began immediately the search for a new minister. Samuel Paris packed up what was left of his little family. Betty Paris returned to her home, looked about it at the emptiness left by the loss of her mother and Satuba, who had cared for her most of her life. She had a little brother now, Noise, named after the infamous Reverend of Salem, and little else. It was rumored Noise later died. Samuel Paris and moved where he died in February 1720 at the age of 67. Little Betty Parrish, the child who possibly began the witch crisis when her nervous disposition betrayed her over the conjuring with egg whites, went on to live full life. She married and gave birth to five children while living in Concord, Massachusetts, where her father had first taken her. She, like her father, died at the age of 77. I think they said 67. Do their stuff like that. Reverend Joseph Green takes over. Young 22-year-old Joseph Green rode into town fresh from his graduation from Harvard in 1695. A reformed bad boy, he had found his faith renewed with the teachings of Cotton Mather's sermons. Filled with the charity and love that Paris lacked, he took up the reins of that ill-fated meeting house. His youth and cheerfulness served him well, for he undertook to engage the whole of the community. He could be called on for a barn raising, or some happy talk over a mug of ale and Ingersoll's. He was good with a rifle and felled bobcat as well as bird. He was outgoing and optimistic, something the village had not seen before. While in Wenham, his eye fell upon the lovely daughter of Mr. Garrish, and he asked her to marry him. Elizabeth said yes, and soon the parsonage was filled with the laughter of little boys. Reverend Noyes wrote of them, quote, they were a lovely, loving pair, end quote. Reverend Green engaged Salem Village to set up a school and a meeting house. He fought when Indian attacks came near the doorstep and rode with the troop and rode with the troop of horse. His bravest move was yet to come, in a nod to reconciliation and a view to offering some kind of compensation to the injured families. Green reworked the seating arrangement in the Salem Village meeting house. Thomas Putnam's seat of honor was handed to Samuel Nurse, Rebecca's son. Rebecca Nurse's daughter, the widow, the widow Preston, took the seat of Mary Walcott's mother, the widow Walcott. Those who had played a role in the death of Rebecca Nurse had been relegated to the second row. Oddly, there was no resistance in the new seating chart. Who would dare to now? And so, began an uncomfortable coming together. It started out slowly, like the careful sewing up of an unraveled quilt. Reverend Green preached peace and forgiveness, and Rebecca Nurse's children, raised as they had been with the knowledge of the scriptures, looked at last at these people who had been their enemies and heard Jesus upon the cross, quote, forgive them, for they know not what they do, end quote, reversing the damage. On December 22nd, 1702, after repeated requests by her friends, Rev Reverend Joseph, Reverend Joseph Green, approached his congregation in Salem Village and broached the subject of reversing Martha Corey's excommunication. This was a big task. 
It was something that would require a good deal of soul-searching. Green reminded those in attendance that it was now common knowledge that the witchcraft trials had been found problematic at best. The members took to their knees and their conscience, and finally, over a year, over a year later, voted on February 14, 1703, to restore Martha Corey's good name to the church register. A decade had passed since the witch trials and executions. Petitions had been arriving at the general court, beginning on March 2, 1703. Several inhabitants of Salem Village and Topsfield presented a petition with 21 names, including those of Andover. The document was signed by the children and spouses of the executed, along with three who were found guilty but did not hang. Abigail Faulkner Sr., Elizabeth Proctor, and Sarah Wardwell, and Sarah Wardwell, listed were the names of those who perished. Rebecca Nurse, Mary Etsy, Mary Parker Vandover, Elizabeth Howe, John Proctor, and something would be publicly done to take off the infamy from those names. Abigail Faulkner Sr. sent another petition in June 1703 to remind the court that although she had been reprieved, she was still legally a malefactor convict upon record of the most heinous crimes that mankind can, can be supposed to be guilty of, which besides its utter ruining and defacing my reputation, will certainly expose myself to imminent danger by new accusations. Eleven Essex County ministers asked the court to reconsider the cases in an effort that something be publicly done to clear the good name and reputation of some who had suffered. Only upon complaint of some of the young persons under diabolical molestations. On July 21, 1703, Abigail Faulkner received what many hoped for. She, along with sundry persons, along with sundry persons, were restored their just credit and reputations, as if no such judgment had been had. A bill was also drawn up to disavow spectral evidence in future trials. Ever present was the Puritan belief that hardships were the turning away of God's providence in allowing the devil to afflict the wicked. This, when, thus, when in July of 1704, a mighty drought dried up the countryside, and war broke out in Europe, which would, be, which would impact the New Englanders as well, many wondered if their part in the witch hangings was coming back to haunt them. One such person was Reverend Mitchell Wigglesworth of Malden. He wrote to Increase Mather on July 22, 1704, quote, I fear that God hath a controversy with us about what was done in the time of the witchcraft. I fear the innocent blood hath been shed, and they may have had their hands defiled therewith. He threw the magistrates a bone by declaring the by declaring the judges did act consciously, conscientiously, and accordingly, excuse me, and what they did and what they did apprehend then to be sufficient proof. But since that have not the devil's impostures impostures appeared? End quote. Wigglesworth believed more needed to be done, not just in word, but in deed. Many of the estates of those who were executed and jailed were in ruin. He stated, quote, the families of such were condemned for supposed witchcraft, have been ruined by taking away and making havoc of their estates, and leaving them with nothing for the relief, end quote. He urged that some financial remuneration be given to the families. The court weighed down the court weighed down with the expense of Canadian attacks and the efforts of the, and the effects of the drought balked. The witchcraft victims would have to wait. 
and Putnam Jr. confesses. It was August 1706 when Reverend Green took the short stairs to his pulpit and looked out into the upturned faces. They were here to witness something extraordinary. Ann Putnam Jr., now 26 years of age, head bowed, stood to the right of the pulpit podium as Reverend Green read a statement that she that had been taken down on her behalf. Anne had asked to be admitted to the Church of Salem Village. Green believed she needed to address the congregation and purify herself by asking for forgiveness for her part in the witchcraft trials. She needed clean hands and a clean heart to partake in the, of the communication. The meeting house walls may have still reverberated with Anne's screams as Rebecca Nurse stood there accused of witchcraft. The young Anne, along with her inner circle of afflicted girls, had shrieked with such torment and convulsions that Rebecca, seeing the hatred for her, had cried out, Oh, Lord, help me. There had been no help for Rebecca, and now her sons and daughters looked upon the chastened young woman before them, asking them to forgive her. It was Anne's words being read to a congregation made up of some of the witch trials' surviving families. Reverend Green cleared his throat and began reading of Anne's confession. And here's the quote. I desire to be humble before God. It was a great delusion of Satan that deceived me in a sad time. I did not out of any anger, malice, or ill will. Oh, okay, I'm sorry. I did it, not out of any anger, malice, or ill will. The congregation, more knowledgeable now of some of the... Okay, the congregation, let's see in the quotes, sorry. <clears throat> see what I mean? Everything runs together. The congregation... More knowledgeable now of some of the of some of the things that had put names of witches into the mouths of James, may have looked at them, hissing the names of those she loathed. And senior, dead now for over six years, hovered over the meeting as surely as if she had been seated there. Reverend Green continued to read Anne's confession, quote, and particularly, as I was the chief instrument of accusing Goodwife Nurse and her two sisters. I desired to lie in the dust and be humble for it, and that I was a cause with others so sad a calamity to them and their families. I desired to lie in the dust and earnestly beg forgiveness of all those unto whom I have given just cause of sorrow and offense, whose relations were taken away and accused. Quote. Reverend Green concluded his reading of the confession. All were quiet. Hearts were full with so many emotions, and yet... It was a feeling of forgiveness that went out. They voted Anne Putnam Jr. into their fold. Anne's was not the first public confession. Others had come before her, though of higher rankings than the afflicted. The witch trial jury on January 15, 1697, wrote a document in an effort to absolve themselves of wrongdoing. They, along with Thomas Fisk, the same foreman who had questioned poor Rebecca Nurse on that inflammatory statement and fought her and found her silent in its answering wrote the following, quote, We ourselves were not capable to understand nor able to withstand the mysterious delusion of the power of darkness and prince of air, whereby we feel we have been instrumental with others, though ignorantly and unwillingly, to bring upon ourselves the guilt of innocent blood. They begged forgiveness of the impacted families and expressed their, and expressed their deepest sorrow. Reverend Hale, present, from the first outcry of Betty Parrish, wrote his confession in a thorough outpouring of the entire story in his manuscript entitled A Modest Inquiry into the Nature of Witchcraft. Riven Higginson, 
of the First Church of Salem added his thoughts in the book's preface and also voiced his sympathy. In 1711, the numerous petitions for some kind of restitution took effect. A sum of, five, a sum of 578 to 12 shillings was awarded to the survivors. Stephen Seawall headed to the committee. Headed the okay. Stephen Seawall headed the committee assigned to dole out the money. Some demands for compensation were merely that of the prison fees and travel expense for those of the imprisoned and their families. Others, such as Philip English's claim of fifteen hundred pounds, would have depleted the pot. In the end, he received nothing. His heirs, after his death, were finally awarded two hundred pounds. John Elizabeth Proctor's family was awarded 150 pounds. George Jacob Sr. was given 70 pounds. And George Burroughs, 50 pounds. Martha Carrier's can was awarded 7 pounds, 6 shillings. While Abigail Hobbs, a confessor who had not been put to death, received 10 pounds. Giles and Martha Corey's family received 21 pounds. Collectively, while Sarah Good's descendants were awarded 30 pounds perhaps as a means to offer some security to Little Dorcas Good, who, from months of incarceration and the traumatic effects of her mother's hanging, was never quite right in the head thereafter. And the nurse family? Peter Cloyce had collected Sarah, Rebecca's church door-slamming door sister, after she was released from jail and left in the area. Rebecca, Rebecca nurse's children, had made it clear they did not want money, but a clearing of their mother's name. It was finally granted on March 2, 1712, when the First Church of Salem revoked her excommunication, that it may no longer be a reproach to her memory and an occasion of grief to her children. Giles Corey was likewise reinstated. Was likewise reinstated. The devil departs Salem Village. The destruction of lives begun 20 years earlier was slowly being restored, although the damage to families would never be repaired. A few silver coins would not undo the loss of lives, farmland, and livelihood, let alone bring about the full understanding of what had happened to the small community of 500 souls and beyond. Sir William Phipps. Sir William Phipps returned to England in mid-November 1694 amidst the criticism of his handling of events as governor in 1692. He died shortly thereafter in February 1695. Thomas and Anne Carr Putnam died within two weeks of each other in 1699. Putnam's heirs received a small inheritance as Thomas left behind an estate heavily in debt. Anne Putnam Jr. died unmarried in May 1715 at the age of 35. Due to her confession and membership of the church, she died with the forgiveness of her fellow man. God's forgiveness had already been granted. Elizabeth Booth married Israel Shaw in Salem one day after Christmas, 1695. She bore two children. Her sister Alice, who had joined her as an accuser, married Ebenezer Marsh in Salem on November 25, 1700. Abigail Hobbs married Andrew, Andrew Center of Ipswich on June 18, 1709. Her widowed stepmother, Deliverance, may have lived with them. She bore two sons after moving to Windham. Elizabeth Betty Hubbard who had run from the wolf shape of Sarah Good all those years ago, married John Bennett in 1711 in Gloucester and bore four children. Sarah Churchill, 
married Edward Andrews on August 11, 1709, at the age of 37. If she had looked into the Venus glass for some sign of her future husband's occupation, she would have seen the shape of a weaver's loom. For so he was, for so he was. They were both fined for fornication before their union. They lived in, in, in Berwick, Maine, where he died. Sarah was still very much alive at the age of 67. She vanished from the record soon after. Mercy Lewis, one of the more vocal of the accusers, floundered after the trials. She moved to Greenland near Portsmouth, now near Portsmouth, New Hampshire, to live near her Aunt Mary Lewis. Mary was married to Jonathan Lewis and had a brother named Abraham Lewis. It was at that home of Abraham that Mary bore a bastard son. One Charles Allen stepped forward during Mercy's prosecution to testify on her behalf. It was believed the child was Allen's. He and Mercy married before 1701 and ended up in Boston. Betty Paris, whose removal from the witchcraft delirium may have saved her life. May have saved her, married, okay, may have saved her and her life, married Benjamin Barron in 1710 and had five children. He died in 1754 and she in 1760. Susanna Sheldon fell on hard times after her famous professor met with his favor. She wandered to Providence, Rhode Island, and lived with a relative, John Sheldon, for a time. On May 8, 1694, she was ordered to court as a person of evil, evil fame. She may have been forced from town, as many prostitutes were. There is no record of her after 1697. Mercy Short, the young woman with whom Cotton Mather lavished so much time in an effort to relieve her afflictions, was married off by Mather to one Joseph Marshall on June 29, 1694. The happy union was not to last, as Mercy was excommunicated on the grounds of adultery with another man. She died before 1708. Mary Walcott, the Paris's closest neighbor, and possibly one of the first brought into the accuser's circle, fared better than many of her constituents. She married Isaac Farrer Farr in Salem on April 29, 1696, only four years after the witchcraft outbreak. They ended up in Ashford, Connecticut in 1713, where they raised six children. Abigail Williams and Mary Warren disappeared from the record books. If they had married, it would probably have been recorded. Some rumors had them falling in the way of Susanna Sheldon, where men paid for their services. There was little more known of them after the witch trials came to an end. Theodat Lawson packed up his documents and went back to England in 1696. He published an extended version of his 1692 sermons called Brief and True Narrative in 1704. His fortunes did not go as planned, and he was enduring deep financial distress in 1714. Cotton Mather died in 1728, outliving his much older father, Increase Mather's by only five years. He celebrated, his celebrated works lived on and are still cherished by scholars of the witchcraft trials. Nicholas Noyes fulfilled Sarah Good's curse of the gallows when she told him that he would have blood to drink if he hanged her. Noyes was old and fat in 1718 when a blood vessel burst inside his head, leaving his mouth filled with blood. He was 70 years old. It had taken 20 years for Sarah Good to extract her revenge, that is, if you believe in witch's curse. George Jacob Jr.'s bones were found on, on his abandoned farm 
a grave bulldoze by a developer in the 1950s. The developer put the bones in a box and handed it over to the Danvers Archival Center. Danvers was the new name given to Salem Village when it finally became incorporated in 1757. In August 1992, the Turf Centennial Committee arranged to have Jacob's bones buried in the nurse homestead cemetery near Rebecca's grave. Danvers Turf Centennial Committee persuaded the Massachusetts House of Representatives in 1992 to issue a resolution for the courage and steadfastness of these condemned persons who adhered to truth when the legal, clerical, and, and political institutions failed them. It was strong words coming from a body of, le of, uh, of legislative giants. The document listed the names that were omitted from the earlier reversal of, of attainder. The wording said the victims of 1692 were worthy of, re of remembrance and commemoration. Finally, on October 25, 2001, the missing names of Susanna Martin, Bridget Bishop, Alice Parker, Margaret Scott, and Wilmot Reed were added to the 1957 resolve. The final ablution for the 1692 witchcraft victims was given 310 years after the hangings. Acting Governor Jane Swift signed the act that would officially clear all of the names of those executed from witchcraft during the hysteria of 1692. On June 9, 2002, supporters and many descendants of the victims held, an, held a service at Salem's first church to honor them and restore their names as innocent of any wrongdoing. The devil, Dumbo Salem Village, dropped the bishops, knights, castles, and pawns into a bag and set his sights elsewhere. He crossed the Atlantic to England, where he filled heads with nightmares and specters tor tormented them and tortured, resulting in witches burning at the stake until the early 18th century. One of his chosen, Jane Wenham, was tried as a witch in 1712 but was pardoned and set free. The last execution took place in England in 1716 when Mary Hicks and her daughter Elizabeth were hanged. Scholars have wrestled over the centuries with the true cause of the Salem witch trial outbreak and what caused it. A popular theory is that of ergo poisoning. Ergo is a fungus blight that forms hallucinogenic drugs in bread. It thrives in a cold winter followed by a wet spring. The problem with this theory is if the ergo, ergot was infecting bread dough, then wouldn't every person eating it show signs of hallucinations? Why only a handful of girls? And if ergot appears on wheat in the spring, after the winter thaw, then why were the first outbreaks in February when snow lay on the ground and the wheat had not been planted? Other theories are mass hallucination among hormonal girls and equally hysterical women. In the 1800s, women suffering from hysteria were diagnosed as having symptoms due to their reproductive organs and unmet needs. Hysteria was typically labeled a female's complaint, looked at by men with rolled eyes. Laudanum was an opiate, so readily prescribed in that era that practically every woman carried a bottle in her purse to relieve her jittery symptoms. It is obvious from later confessions by the afflicted girls, as well as those told early on in the trials to adults who should have listened, that this was a contrived attack upon carefully selected victims. Quote, we must have sport, declared one of the afflicted girls in Ingersoll's ordinary, before the first person was executed. Fake props and mistaken names were overlooked as the wheels of justice surged forward. 
Finally, the confessions of Mary Warren and Ann Putnam Jr. put to rest any doubts that the girls were faking their symptoms and lying. Sarah Churchill had admitted to the fakery outside the Salem townhouse when Sarah Ingersoll confronted her. The question remains, what if only one dynamic had changed within this wheel with that wheel? What if Paris, rather than encouraging Betty and Abigail's early signs, had punished them as had other parents and towns beyond the Salem Village borders when their adolescents acted up? Had he seen these early signs of witchcraft as a means to bring the people in, in this village to church, to God, to find need of him, to revere, to, to revere him, to pay his salary? What if there had not been ongoing wars with the Wabanki leaving young girls like Mercy Lewis, Susanna Sheldon, Sarah Churchill, Mercy Short, and others, victims, nightmares of butchered relatives and homelessness? Did these horrific events leave them vulnerable to hysteria and a need to rid themselves of perceived wrongs? What if the charter regulating Massachusetts had not been revoked, stirring up land disputes and fear of losing one's farmland? What if the new charter had gotten to the shores of Boston much earlier? What if the Putnams and Porters and their constituents had not warred over Salem Town and village boundaries, meeting house and church affiliations, etc.? If Salem Village had not felt like the ugly stepchild and had not been granted rights to its own, like Andover Topsfield and so many others, would the divisive nature of these people involved have ended in, dark, ended in death? And what if the magistrates had pulled the plug on the nonsense from the beginning, refusing, as others had always done, to listen to the fantasies of children? What if they had not seen their failures on the main frontier as something requiring a scapegoat? Something ethereal and hard to track down, like diabolical infestations. This perfect storm of conditions that hovered above Salem Village in 1692 might have been stemmed if only one of these components had been removed. If peace and love had been preached from the pulpit, if quarrels among the neighbors had been mitigated quickly and fairly before they festered and split open, if supplies of men had been sent to the frontier in a timely manner and the militia better regulated. If the charter had not been revoked and there was a legal means to handle the witch trials early examinations before the prisons filled up and overflowing. If the nightmares of little girls had been soothed away before witches Kate gave credibility to the shadows that haunted their dreams. It is, perhaps, this unequaled storm of happenstance and the culmination of so many factors that leave us today peering into the Venus glass in search of answers. It is almost too incredulous to have happened, yet it did. And there is nothing to say that a perfect alignment of planets and conditions couldn't bring it to pass again. Let me take a look at this and see where we're at. I think that might be it. Nope. Okay, well, we're going to continue next Sunday then. It looks like there's still a little bit more in here. Says I'm 78%. So, okay. All right. Well, we're going to stop there. Boom, power off. Thank you, everybody, for coming today and listening. It's been a fascinating ride with this book. You know, it's a lot more interesting than I thought it was going to be. But, gosh, the stuff that went on, right? The stuff that went on in Salem and other towns and cities at that point, small cities. Anyway, I want to thank you all for coming tonight. Tomorrow we'll be back. I will be back at 6.30 p.m. with a special guest. His name is Javier 
Morales. And Mr. Morales um, lives up here in Northern California and uh, likes to hang out in Yosemite and different places like that looking for cryptids. So he's got some stories to tell. You know that? That was weird. That was weird. I heard, like, I don't know what that was. That's kind of creepy. So he's got some stories to tell. And he'll be with us tomorrow, 6.30 p.m. Pacific. Okay, well, I want to thank you all. And again, if you like what you saw tonight and you're watching from Facebook, please be sure to hit that follow button and uh, hit the like button or the heart button and show me some love. Uh, if you're watching from YouTube, same thing. If you click on that uh, little ghost, that will subscribe you to our videos. And uh, we're doing video. I said that, you know, six days a week. And there might be something that you like. I'm going to check them all out. There's over 541 videos sitting over there. And as a journalist, I don't like to stay on the same subject all the time. So uh, I change it up. So I'm sure there's something in there that you will like. All right. And I'm going to plug this too. I'm doing shorts. I'm doing a lot of video shorts and it's kind of fun to do them. So if you have any interest in, in like checking out the video shorts, some are funny, some are serious. Just depends what you like. Check us out on TikTok and California Haunts, lowercase, or Facebook or YouTube. Okay. YouTube.com forward class, forward class, forward slash at California Haunts Radio. All right, everybody, I will see you all tomorrow, and I hope you have a great rest of the evening. Enjoy coffee or whatever it is you're going to do. I'm about to go make some dinner myself, and then I'll be back here working and uh, doing stuff for you guys. <laughs> all right, I'll see you tomorrow. Have a good evening. <laughs>